Good morning. Welcome again to In Town Church. We're so glad that you're in worship with us. I'm Brian and one of the pastors here. And if I haven't met you, I'd love to do so after the service, answer any questions that you have, and maybe hear a little, about, a little bit of your story. Um, if you are new, we've been going through a study of the Psalms as songs of hope, as ways of prayer, and looking at different aspects of the human experience, and then tying them to the way that the Psalms handle them and ask us to pray that way and pray them. And the one that we're looking at this morning is weariness, praying our weariness. So keep that word in your mind as we go through this. This is our psalm reading, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. This is the word of the Lord. We have a number of uh, Lord of the Rings fans here, and so every once in a while I like to put in a few illustrations from Lord of the Rings. And if you'll remember the first episode or the first story, and Bilbo has gone on this great journey there and back again, the Hobbit's over, and it's the first part of the trilogy. And he's lived for a while now in the Shire, in, in comfort and in pleasure and all of the delights that the Shire has for him. But he's weary. He's thinking about life and what life is all about. Is it life meant to live in comfort in the Shire? And Gandalf comes by and he says, I feel I need a holiday, a very long holiday. Isn't that sort of like what it is to live in the Shire? Isn't life in the Shire an extended sort of holiday? But he needs a holiday. As I've told you before, probably a permanent holiday. I don't expect I shall return. In fact, I don't mean to. And I've made all the arrangements. I am old, Gandalf. I don't look it, but I'm beginning to feel it in my heart of hearts. I feel all thin, sort of stretched, if you know what I mean, like butter that has been scraped over too much bread. I need a change or something. As you guys probably have experienced, the rhythms of life can be very liberating, They can be cause for joy. They can be comfort, comfortable. 
as we get used to them, but they can also be very numbing and very depleting and very wearisome. And sometimes we feel like we're stretched beyond what we can bear, like there's not enough of us to go around in our daily life, like the butter on Bilbo's bread. Everyday routines become wearisome. Our days feel like they're lined from on end to end, and they feel the same. We get dressed, we go to work, we make dinner, we wash the clothes, we call the plumber, we walk the dog, we go to the doctor, we go to the grocery store, we balance the budget. Our tasks sometimes seem endless, and that's the only thing that we can look at our day and say, we've accomplished. I've done this task, and I've done that task. But sometimes we have a difficulty in tying them together to some coherent and meaningful purpose that makes those tasks less onerous. We may not be able to relate to David's situation, one of great danger and utter desolation, but we can certainly relate to his feelings towards this life of numbness in the desert, this life of ache, this life where it seems like the days are just laid out end to end into eternity. We're going to look at praying our dryness, our numbness, our aches, and our weariness. What does it mean to pray our weariness? We need to see three things here, David's dilemma, David's desire, and then David's determination. But before we do, let's pray for our time together. Father, what a great worship service where we have welcomed new members, where we have baptized a sweet little girl. We know that you are present, that as your people gather before you, that you are present, even if we can't sense it and feel it all the time. We are not all here believers. We're not all here from the same story, from the same tradition. But what we do have in common is that we often experience times of great weariness, of joyless repetition. Father, would you step into that story? Would you step into our story in a new way that even in our weariness that there can be joy, that even in our numbness, that you can come in and give us comfort and give us delight, that we can feel even in emptiness that we are feasting on the richest of foods. Would you make that way, that, that path known to all of us this morning? And would you do so as we look at this great text? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you notice the headings or the headings of the Psalms are very important. They don't all have Psalms, but many, if not most of them, do. And they give you a little bit of context of why the Psalm is written and what's going on. And if you noticed, it said that Psalm 63 is a Psalm of David. It's a Psalm of the King. And it's a Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah or the wilderness of Judah. Now, what's true about a wilderness or a desert, especially a in biblical terms, is that you don't go there by choice normally. Jesus went there by choice, but it's a place of desolation. It's a place of aching. It's a place of gnawing numbness. It's a place of desolation. But look at verse 11. It says that he's the king. The king will rejoice in God. Kings don't live in wildernesses. Kings of all people 
Don't go to wildernesses unless it's to go to battle to defeat someone. Why is the king, why is King David in the desert? There was a time where King, where king David, though he was still the functional king or the formal king, he was not the functional king of Israel. He was on the run. And who was he on the run from? His third son, Absalom. Absalom has staged a coup d'etat. He rebels against his father and takes most of Israel and then violently drives his father out of Jerusalem into the desert. David is in the desert. King David is in the desert, in the wilderness. He has lost his son. In fact, he's lost two of his sons. And soon a third, he's lost a kingdom. He's lost his people. And he's on the verge, or in the, at least in the, has the possibility of losing his life. People are seeking to kill him. His son is seeking to kill him. Can you imagine what he's going through? And he says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. In the past, if you said someone was earnest, you were saying, you're paying them a compliment. You, but today, you say something's earnest or someone's earnest, it means that they're, they're trying too hard. They're insincere. Last year, Mumford & Sons released their record that was huge. and It was everywhere, all over the radio. It was selling a million copies. But it was largely panned by most serious critics. Why? It was too earnest. We live in a very cynical society that looks down, has cynicism towards earnestness because it seems old-fashioned. It seems that someone is trying too hard. It seems inauthentic. But for David, earnestness is the most honest of words. And in the Hebrew, the word that underlines, underlies earnestness is not only meaning seriousness or deliberateness, but it means earliness. Early in the day, David is seeking him. Now, that's very interesting when you pair that with the other time point or the other uh, in, uh, indicative of what time it is in, in the verse 6. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. In other words, David wakes up seeking God and he goes to bed doing the very same thing. But what's interesting about this is this is not a boast. This is not a boast about how deliberate and consistent and powerful his devotional life is. What he is saying is that he wakes up weary and he goes to bed weary. This relentless day after day weariness keeps him up at night and he's wondering, God, where are you? There's an emptiness, a weariness, and even sleepless distress that has come down upon David. He says, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there's no water. David is not expressing his strength here. He's expressing his lack. His dilemma is that he's alone. His dilemma is that his son and all of Israel, most of it, has driven him out into the desert. And he wonders, God, what are you doing? Where are you? Day after day, I plead with you. Day after day, I seek you earnestly. His dilemma is that God doesn't seem to be there for him. His dilemma is day and night numbness and thirst and weariness. 
And so what does he desire? What does he desire to remedy that situation? I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. As we said in the introduction and welcome to new members, of course, God is not confined to the walls of the sanctuary or the walls of the church, but he works in a particularly special way there, and that we, each of us, are built to experience him in the sanctuary. And there's something that's lacking in David's experience simply by being separated from the sanctuary, from being separated from the worship of God with the rest of the nation. David's on the run. He's in a dry land, and he longs to return home where things are good, where he can worship with God's people where he can see his power in the sanctuary. But it's more than a physical return that he's longing for because he knows that he has this deep longing, this deep thirst that only God himself can slake. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. He knows that even in the midst of enormous loss, that the richness of God's love is worth the wait. It's worth the seeking. It's worth having patience and the perseverance of a genuine search for who God is and how he can show up in David's real life. Now, unless you are forced to come here this morning, I think I can say safely that all of us here this morning are in some kind of spiritual journey, some process of spiritual questioning and searching, that you're here most likely for a reason unless you are forced to come. And if we're going to encounter God, if we're going to find answers to that search, if we're going to find the type of vital relationship, the vital spirituality that David seems to have, we're going to have to wrestle with the question of what thing, if you lost it, would make life no longer worth living? Or to put it another way, what are you giving your life to acquire, possess, and maintain that if you lost it would make life seem like a desert. David has lost everything. And I know that there are many of us in here that have experienced great pain and great loss. And maybe you can totally relate to what David is going through. I cannot. David has lost everything. And he's able to say, because your love is better than life, better than any other pursuit, better than anything that I can grasp and acquire and maintain because your love is better than life, I will praise you. In other words, God himself is better than any gift that could be received or taken away. Health, security, employment, your position, all that a human being can have is inferior to grace. Why grace? It says God. Why do we itemize here grace? Well, you've got to know David's story. You've got to know a little bit more. What we've learned already from Psalm 63 is terrible, and it's enough. But if you know the roots of this story, why David's on the run, it becomes so much worse. If you remember, David had an affair with a woman who was married to a trusted officer who's off fighting for David. David's home in the Shire. David's comfortable in his palace. 
Now, of course, he was a warrior and he did go off to battle, but in this circumstance, he was at home while his men were out fighting on his behalf. And he has a fling with Bathsheba and she becomes pregnant. And then what does he do? He tries to cover it up. He has Uriah, the husband, put on the front line so that he's likely to be killed. Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and confronts him with a parable. And David is drawn into this parable, and he understands once and for all how guilty he is. What an awful set of decisions that he has put in motion. Can God possibly forgive him? He is filled with grief and with shame and then repentance, repentance. And Nathan tells him he's forgiven, but he says prophetically that the sword will never depart from your household. In other words, in other words David, you are forgiven, but you have made choices that have permanently poisoned your family. Your abuse of your power has sown seeds of bitterness and conspiracy, and therefore the sword will never leave your household. We don't get any commentary on exactly what Absalom is seeing in this and how that directly affected his conspiracy and his murder. But Nathan prophetically says that you are forgiven and God loves you no matter what, but you have sown seeds of bitterness and rebellion and conspiracy in your family. And in the following years, Absalom kills his brother and he sways Israel to follow him and violently pushes David, his father, off the throne. So not only is David on the run, not only is he in exile, but he knows that it's his fault. He's failed. He's failed as a father. He's failed as a king. He's failed as a follower of God. And as he endures day after day of weariness, he knows it's his fault. He's utterly ruined. And when you see that backdrop, when you understand just what's gone on to lead up to this circumstance of him praying in the desert, verse 11 is stunning, or at least it should be. The king will rejoice. The king will rejoice. One commentator made the comment that this little part of this, of this verse is the clue to the meaning of the whole psalm because David doesn't say, I will rejoice. He could simply say, I, David, will rejoice. But he says, the king will rejoice. It's much more than a synonym for I. He is saying, I am a failure, but God says, I am still the king. What God is doing at work behind the scenes, what he has said about me still stands true, that I am the king. Written from banishment, it's a, it's a reassertion of his calling. It's, he's utterly ruined, and yet he sing, sings praises. His life has been ripped out from under him, and he's able to say, I still know who I am. I am still the king that God has appointed. He has ruined his relationship with his family. He's ruined his relationship with everyone that he knows. He's ruined his life, but he hasn't ruined his relationship with the one person in the world whose opinion ultimately matters. He hasn't been able to push God away. God continues to come to him and say, I will be with you because 
of the following reason. It says his love is better than life. His love is better than life. David's life and the parts that that you and I would cling to for all practical purposes have been stripped away. And yet in the midst of utter desolation, he is able to say, yes, but, yes, however, but the king will rejoice. I still have God's love. He hasn't left me. He hasn't rejected me. How could he not reject David? He's an abusive adulterer and murderer. How could God not reject him? One word, one little thing, one thing that's so much better than everything terrible and sad in David's life. Our English translations say love, God's love is better than life. But the word underneath there is so much more freighted with meaning than what we normally associate with our English concept of love. This word, what he's clinging to is the Hebrew word chesed. We looked at this in our study of Ruth about a, a year and a half ago. And what we learned there is that this word chesed is loyal devotion, everlasting kindness, sacrificial faithfulness. It's binding oneself to another person no matter what. Has said is love that is willing to put itself in danger. What David's desire is, is to hold on to that love, to hold on to that promise. And so he makes a determination. He determines to step into that, prom- into that promise. If I lose everything and yet keep that, I can keep on living. It's the one thing that you can give your life to and know that you'll never lose it. Everything else is a risk. Everything else that you build your life on, as good as it may be, your reputation, your spouse, your children, their future, your future, all of those things that you want to acquire and possess and maintain, as good as they may be, are risky. And they'll turn on you or they'll be taken away. The one thing that you can give your life to and know no matter what comes that you'll never lose it is God's faithfulness, his chesed. I practice that. It's hard to say. David's determination is that I'm in danger, but I'm going to trust the love that puts itself in danger. You know, kings are important in the Bible. David as king knew God's loving kindness to him personally, but he also knew of a coming time where the one that would sit on his throne would reign for eternity and would bring in Hased in a whole new way. So if David, with all that's going on, with everything that he has lost, if David can have hope in the wilderness, if he can rejoice in desolation, what about you and I? He looked forward without the details of how God would do this, but you and I look backward and we see exactly how he did it. We know that his has said, his love, that which, that which puts itself in danger, we know of this because there was another king who was driven out into the wilderness, 
another king who said he would rejoice in God no matter what. Do you see at the end of the day, David, the king, is driven out into the wilderness for his own sin, but Jesus, the king, is driven out into the wilderness for your sin and my sin. Jesus is driven into the wilderness, to the cross, to show that no matter what the danger, his love will prevail. His love will never leave you. And what David said is, says is because your love, your chesed, you're binding yourself to me, though through everything I've done to push you away, your love is better than life, and therefore my lips will praise you. The only thing, this is the only thing that pushes out all the other things that we're giving our lives to. This is the only thing that brings us peace when everything else that we've given our lives to is stripped away. The American poet David White says that the antidote to exhaustion is not rest, but it's wholeheartedness. The antidote to exhaustion is not rest, but it's wholeheartedness. What he means is that no amount of rest, no amount of sleep, no amount of vacation can cure your inner divisions, can cure your and my tendency to wake up and live by a caricature of ourselves so that we can succeed, that we can please others, so that we can get what we want. We live fake lives, and therefore we have these inner divisions that run so deep that no vacation, no amount of rest can fix and heal. We are giving ourselves to the things that are life for us. We give ourselves, we give our money, we give our worship to the things that are life for us. For David, it was God's faithfulness, his loving kindness, his love. That was life for him. And so therefore, he could lose everything and still have everything he needed. Bilbo wasn't really looking for a vacation He was looking for wholeheartedness. He needed a story to live by that went beyond, that transcended just the comforts and lifestyle maintenance of the Shire. And Jesus had a story to live by. He was wholehearted in something. You know what that was? He was wholehearted for the joy set before him. Hebrews 12 tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Do you know what that joy was? It was you. His joy was you. He went to the cross because you were in front of him. And he delighted in you and said, I will do anything. I will put my life in danger so that you can have life. For the joy set before him. For you, he endured the cross. And if you are in the wilderness today, whether it's just the mundanity of life or whether it's something incredibly terrible that's befallen you, consider Jesus. This verse goes on. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow, what? Weary. Consider him so that you will not grow weary. Wherever you are this morning, bored to tears with life or going through something that no one else would want to go go through or could understand, 
he does not mean to leave you desolate and joyless. For even in the midst of horrendous trial or just the humdrum weariness of life, Jesus knows and he is present and he has great joy when he looks at you. I'll leave you with this quote that's printed in the front of your bulletin from Albert Camus, his novel, The Plague. And Rio is looking at the old man in the window, thinking of life and thinking of the sorrows of life. And he's looking at toys, wooden toys through the window. And Rio, unbeknownst to this man, uh, is looking at him. And he says, and he knew also what the old man was thinking as his tears flowed. And he, Rio, thought it too, that a loveless world is a dead world. And always there comes an hour when one is weary of prisons, of one's work, and of devotion to duty, and all one craves for is a loved face, the warmth and wonder of a loving heart. Friends, that's Jesus' heart for you. And in the midst of humdrum or great trial, the warmth and wonder of his loving heart can be near. So would you consider him? You're a joy to him. Consider that as we pray. Father, would you take us into the depths of your love? None of what I have said today and certainly none of what is said in the Psalms means to belittle trials, means to belittle our responses to it and the great grief and anguish and agony that we express when things come towards us that are painful. And so, Father, I pray that no one would misinterpret that tears are valid, tears are right, grief is right, and it's not easy. But, Father, I pray that as we learn to lean into your covenant love, that we would learn also to consider Jesus and to look at his cross and see his joy, and that it would become more and more our own. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.